due to client demand, we are raising a fintech digital asset VC fund. So we will be investing in companies, brokerage companies, fintech companies, miners related to Bitcoin and Ethereum and and the blockchain. We are definitely going to be doing that with a fund. But I believe firmly that for that stuff to do well, the coins themselves have to do well. And I think the coins are very, very cheap. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fintech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is Anthony Scaramucci, founder and managing partner at Skybridge, a global alternative investment fund with several billion dollars in assets under management. Anthony also founded SALT, one of the premier thought leadership conferences in the world of finance, technology, and geopolitics. In this episode, we discuss navigating a market downturn. This is Anthony's ninth bear market. What is different this time and how should fund managers approach the relationship with their investors? Inflation, inflation, inflation. How to deal with it and what to expect, particularly when it comes to alternative asset investors. Anthony's strong conviction in crypto and why he is doubling down on the sector and even launching a fintech-focused venture capital fund, the origins of the SALT conference, main drivers fueling his drive and ambition, family, and a whole lot more. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Anthony Scaramucci, the Mooch. Anthony, how's it going today? Welcome to the Fintech Leaders Podcast. Good to be on, Miguel. Thank you again for having me. I appreciate being here. Happy summer to you. I hope you're having a good one. Yeah, likewise to you. Likewise to you. Uh, uh, excited that we're still uh, we're still not done with the summer. So let, let's start with with this, Anthony. H- how are you doing? Uh, you know, the market has been extremely disappointed for most people out there. Um, you know, you you're a fund manager. You have a multi billion dollar fund that is Skybridge. So Maybe tell us, how are you, uh, how are you coping uh, through this bear market, which I understand is your ninth bear market? Well, I mean, listen, they're, they're, they, they're painful and they're traumatic, even though it's my ninth. I'm not going to BS people and pretend that they're not. But I mean, here's the good news. We have no leverage. Uh, we have a well-positioned portfolio. We had a great month of July. I'll just tell you how... We have very high quality assets that sort of, you know, recovered substantially in July. Um, but what I tell people is if we're managing this stuff minute to minute, it's never going to work. You know, the, the the secret to outperforming and the secret to making things successful or having a long-term discipline staying in the discipline. Now, you've heard me say this, Miguel, but I think it's worth repeating on your podcast. Everybody's a long-term investor until they have short-term losses. The minute they have short-term losses, they get upset. They start to want to change their investment discipline. And there are many stats on this. If you miss the 10 best days of the market, you have a bond market return. If you are following buy-sell recommendations from sell-side analysts or wirehouses, you're 
pulling yourself in and out of the market too many times and you're creating too much transactional friction, which also limits your return. So what I try to tell people is, look, try to take a three, four, five-year investment horizon, invest for a cycle. And if you understand the fundamentals of what you own, if things get weaker, buy into the weakness. You know, don't don't be uh, overly upset with it. Make sense? It, it does. It does. So is it even more frustrating when you tell this to your investors and then you face uh, redemptions? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, but that's a different story. So I'm facing redemptions right now because, um, you know, Morgan Stanley put a sell on the fund. And so we had a long-term relationship with them 15 years. Uh, they had a buy on the fund in March of this past year, but they've decided to put a uh, sell on the fund. And so, um, you know, what happened is, unfortunately, they have compliance pressure too. So there's FAs that are calling me that don't want to sell and they think it's an inopportune time to sell, but they're being forced to sell because of, you know, there's a sell rating and there's compliance pressure. So, you know, we're doing the best we can to let as many people out as possible on one specific fund. We had to suspend the redemptions because we can't let the portfolio get lopsided. Uh, um, so do you understand what I mean by that? Like I can't, if I have 20% in privates, 50, let's say 50% of the people want to redeem, I can't let the privates go to 40%. That's irresponsible. So yeah, you want to maintain the the portfolio composition. Yeah, you have to maintain the integrity of the portfolio. And in the document, it says, you know, li- liquidity in times of market can, due to market conditions could be constrained. It's up to the manager and his board to make those decisions on behalf of all investors. And so we're balancing those two things. And so I can take you back to 2008. Uh, People uh, did suspend some redemptions in 2008. People got upset about that. But then the market rallied. And then the minute the liquidity was there, people said, okay, you can get out. And guess what happened? A lot of people said, wait, wait, I don't want to get out. The stuff is doing really well. So we're in that predicament right now. Again, it's on a small piece of our business. It's only... Uh, 200 of our $4 billion in assets under management. Um, but I'm a high-profile guy, so I get high-profile press, and I understand the uh, sharpness of the press, and I uh, I can take it. But I also appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come on and explain it because I think it's important to tell people uh, people did sign up for that. They It's the worst market environment since 1970. I've never had to do that before in my 30-year career. And hopefully, and God only knows, but we want this to be impermanent. We want it to end quickly. You know, does it make sense? Yeah. yeah, I think one of the most famous examples of, of a similar scenario is illustrated in The Big Short. Uh, Dr. Mike Burry, I think, was he, he kind of also stopped redemptions and then his LPs were rewarded handsomely. Um, so I love, I love my investors and I'm trying to look out for all of them. And by the way, I have all my own money in these funds. So it's not like I'm putting people in funds that I don't believe in. I believe in them. I have all my own money in them, but you know, Morgan Stanley, uh, we dropped during the pandemic. We went down 25%. They put a hold on the fund. We went up 61%. They put a buy on the fund. We went down 20%, which is where we are right now. They've got to sell on the fund. You know, okay, guys, I get it. It's going like this and I understand it. But, you know, I, I think that's too transactional. 
And moreover, your client signed up for something that was long term. Do you see what you see what I'm saying? How how do you handle? Obviously, not everyone is is redeeming, but just in general, uh, your your entire investor base in times of crisis, and given that you've seen many before, how, what approach do you take? Is, is there like a first uh, principles approach that you have? Some frameworks to to better navigate LPs. I I, I suspect. I imagine you're talking now, to them more often. Here's the thing. People sell bottoms. They sell bottom. They buy tops. You know, when we were up 25% in 2012, we were raising billions of dollars. We're now down and people are redeeming. That's what happens. They, they, they buy at the top. They sell at the bottom. I have a group of long-term investors that have been with me for 15 years and they don't even look at it. You know what I mean? They, they are properly conditioned not to look at it. You know what I mean? Does your relationship with them change over time, especially during times of crisis? I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a student of the Bible like you are. I believe in the prodigal son story. If someone's mad at me and they redeem and then they want to come back and they want to add to the fund, I'm, the door's open. Come on back in. You know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't hold any grudges. I don't take it personally. You know, it, but here's the thing, Miguel. Here's what I would say to you as a, as a general partner that has clients. If this were an easy business, everybody would have a private plane and everybody would have a yacht. This is not an easy business. But what this requires is patience and fortitude and resilience. And this requires somebody uh, having a, uh, a perspective that allows them to detach themselves from their emotions. So when you go to Paris Island and you're getting trained for the Marines, they're firing guns. Your instinct is to run away from the guns, okay? But by the end of the eight weeks after they beat your brains in, they teach you how to run towards the bullets. You see what I mean? And so I'm 34 years in this business now. When the gunshots are going off and the blood is running in the streets, I'm running towards the opportunity. I'm not running away from it anymore. When I first got started in the business, my first bear market, I had the living daylight scared out of me. I said, oh my God, this thing's going to go to zero. And I did what everybody else does. I sold my whole portfolio and got into cash. And then I was like, that was really stupid. I now have positions in things like Microsoft, Pepsi, and Walt Disney that date back. These are for my children. They date back to 1991. That's 31 years. Go look at those charts, the dividends, the capital appreciation, the growth. Now, some of those periods of time was a flatline. And so my, my point is you're, you're either going to be in a great company, the management team will figure it out over long periods of time, and you do that. And if you don't, you know, look, if you herk and jerk in the markets, you're going to have a shitty return. I'm sorry I cursed, Miguel, but, you know, I'm known for <laughs> No, please, it's, it's encouraged. <laughs> One of the differences of, of five cycles is inflation. And even, even if inflation starts tapering down a bit from now on, it's not going to be a quick decline, right? It's, it's going to take a while, possibly many years. Mm -hmm. How do you navigate inflation, particularly in the alternative asset space? So I don't know that. So... You might be right. It may take many years. Um, it's clearly not what the Fed said. Remember, the Fed originally said it was transitory. 
So it's clearly not transitory. The question is, is it systemic or is it conditional upon the supply dynamic changing, the supply chain changing? And is it conditional upon what happened with the pandemic and the induction of all that capital? You know, so I, I could be wrong, but I want to take everybody back to the fourth quarter of 2019. It was a robust quarter. Uh, we were doing quite well. Um, benign unemployment, um, benign inflation, and we were doing quite well. And then, bam, we got hit by an unexpected hurricane known as COVID-19. We locked down the economy. We pushed money out to people, six or so trillion dollars between the Fed's balance sheet and the stimulus packages. And so we put a lot of money in the system. And at the same time, we put the money in the system because we locked everybody in their offices, in their homes and not in their offices or factories. We disrupted the supply chain. So I'm of the opinion, and I could be wrong, that that is now in the process of healing. The factories are opening up. People are going back to work. They're moving around the country more. Uh, We have a lot of savings. Go look at the savings rate now. The savings rate is off the hook. And so you have this combination of things going on right now. I think we could be six or 12 months from today, like, oh, my God, those inflation numbers are better. They're calmer. Um, could they get to 2%? No, but could in a year's time, could we be in a 3 4% inflation number? I believe that that's the case, but but don't go by me. Forget about me. Let's look at the bond market. Let's take a look at where the 10-year treasury is trading right now. And that's indicating to you, I remember I tell my clients, we focus on the hysteria in the stock market, volatile, and it's fun to watch, and it's entertaining, but the bond market is like 70% of the overall market, right? I mean, it's two and a half to three times the size of the stock market. And so you have, and it's more liquid than the stock market. It's a tremendous amount of volume and activity. And that's telling you that the numbers for the inflation, at least looking at the 10-year, um, I think the 10-year, I don't know where it was today. I didn't get a chance to look at it, but it was like 266 last week. You know, and that was after Jerome Powell's comments, I think the 10 years telling you that we're not going to have multiple years of inflation. But again, Miguel, I've been humbled by life. I've been humbled by markets. I've been humbled by the press. I mean, every time I, every time I have a bad day, the press writes something about it. They forget the good days. I got that. So I've been humbled. I may be wrong about this. But if I'm right, the equity markets are either fairly valued Okay, I'm not saying that they're undervalued. They're fairly valued. I don't think they're, I think they've corrected nicely. Um, but I think the crypto markets are ridiculously undervalued. You know, uh, Bitcoin's probably worth fundamentally 40,000 here, and it's trading, you know, in the low 20,000s. Yeah, that, that's actually a perfect segue to the next topic I wanted to talk about, and that's crypto. Um, you know, we, last time we spoke, you, you, you were, very, very bullish on, on crypto, but specifically Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about your your conviction. You you've notably said that you're you're a long term uh, investor in crypto, well, in everything actually, but especially in crypto, and and that patience comes across in all your public conversations. Uh, what what is driving you your excitement in this space? So many different things, you know. I'm not, again, I'm not measuring. I said this on CNBC last week or uh, 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 10 days ago. I'm not measuring it day to day. 
Uh, I bought my crypto positions in October, November, December of 2020. My average cost is about $18,200. We're trading right now at $23,000. If we had gone from $18,200 to $23,000, people would be very happy. Oh, okay, that's a nice investment, smart. But it went from $18,000 to $66,000 or $69,000 and back down. So people are very unhappy. They're like, okay, you have to be smart enough to sell that top. And then you have to be smart enough to buy it back at the low. I don't have that capability. Now, maybe there are very smart people that can do that. I don't know many. Uh, 34 years in the business. I would rather hold that Bitcoin position for five years. Uh, I bought it at 18000 I think it could be worth $150,000 uh, over the next five years. And I, you know, I like my odds on that because I'm looking at the growth, the growth of the Lightning Network, the exponential growth of the wallets. I'm looking at the regulation in the United Kingdom, in Europe, in Canada, progressing faster than the U.S. I think eventually the United States will embrace it. And so a result of which I think the stuff is very undervalued. You know, while, while you were asking me that question, I was checking the 10 years quickly. The 10 year right now is 2.595. So it went down from 266 on Friday. So Again, the bond market is telling you that the inflation numbers are coming down. So, but for me, go back to the crypto. I am a long-term investor in that. And I can show people over a four and a half year period of time, any rolling four and a half year period of time, people didn't lose money in cryptocurrency. They just didn't. Now, maybe we'll be the first people to do that. Okay. And then you can invite me on and you can dunk me in the public square. Uh, there was a phenomenal... Uh, New York Post composite yesterday, uh, not yesterday, I think it was Thursday, it had me sinking in the SS Mooch and I, my head and I'm, I'm holding on to one oar and there's Bitcoins. And by the way, I wish I owned as many Bitcoins as what's in the boat, but there's Bitcoins <laughs> sinking the boat and there I am, I'm going, I guess, to the bottom of the ocean because of my Bitcoin position. Um, and, you know, that could be the bottom. They could have crawled the bottom, you know. Or we're going into a hellstorm that no one's ever seen or heard of before. That could also happen. Uh, but here's what I know. I'm sized right. So if I got this wrong, and let's say I have it completely wrong, because who the hell knows? Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people can get things wrong in life. If I had this completely wrong, um, I'm sized right. You know, is it going to zero? Jeez, you know, if it goes to zero... It's going to wipe out a trillion dollars of market cap. It's going to be very disruptive. There's, there's hundreds of billions of dollars being deployed in this space right now. So I don't know. Let me see if I can show your, your colleagues this. Here we go. Okay. Okay. Can you see that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to put a, a picture on it uh, on the post. Okay, good. So that's me yeah. thinking in the SS Mooch. And I don't know, there's probably like $25 million worth of Bitcoin on there. I wish I had $25 million. But, but, the, but the point being is I'm going down. And according to the post, you know, there's me going down. Now, Does that need, bother you or flatter you that the post is writing an article about you? Um, you know, listen, I mean, nobody likes bad press. I, I don't, I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like a bad press. I would be flattered or happy if... They wrote something good about me. You know, when the fund was up 61%, we 
We were up 11% year to date on uh, December 31st, 2021 versus 4% for our peer group. Um, that would have been great if someone wrote an article that day, but they don't write that. They wait for something bad to happen and then they write the bad article. So I don't care. You know, my, uh, my old boss, Donald J. Trump, the infamous Donald J. Trump, he said something about the press that I don't necessarily believe. He said, there's no bad press. It's all good press. You know, the fact that they're talking about you is a good thing. I don't necessarily believe that. I think in the money management business, when they're talking about you negatively, right? They, I think people will remember that. They, they remember the negative commentary way more than they remember the positive commentary. Let's put Your it Your reputation way. is important. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, listen, here's the thing. I could get something wrong and I get that. I could buy something that goes down, but nobody can impugn my integrity. You know, we have very tight compliance protocol. We're audited by outside vendors. We're, we have the top shelf law firms in the world. I don't do any personal trading. All my money's in the funds alongside of my investors. So you can be mad at me for buying something that I think is going up that ends up going down. That's fine. You can challenge my financial acumen and then you can decide to fire me. And oh, by the way, the fact that you fired me is fine too. I'm going to let you out. I just have to let you out balancing the interests of every single person that's involved in it. You know, and, so, and by, the way, by the way, nobody in this fund is naive. Nobody in this fund was born yesterday. Everybody in this fund knows that that does happen. It happened in 2008 and it's happening right now in the worst market environment since 1970. It's happening right now. So Anthony, last time we spoke, I asked you why you weren't investing in, call it the picks and shovels of the crypto space. And you, you, you'd you call that uh, being too smart by half. And I like, because every time I talk to you, I learn about a new phrase. Uh, so uh, you, you said you were going direct to Bitcoin. Uh, has has that uh, thinking changed? Have you started investing in, in companies? No, the, in, the, 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 thinking, the thinking hasn't changed. And let me give you the theory behind the thinking. I will point out, though, due to client demand, we are raising a fintech digital asset VC fund. So we will be investing in companies, brokerage companies, fintech companies, miners related to Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and the blockchain. We are definitely going to be doing that with a fund. But I believe firmly that for that stuff to do well, the coins themselves have to do well. And I think the coins are very, very cheap. And I think what's happening, and I tried to describe this on our last podcast that we we're on together, is that institutions are like, oink, oink, I'm not going to touch Bitcoin, but I got to get involved in the space. I can go into a private equity fund or I can buy a company that gets me that pass through exposure without actually owning the underlying thing. And so what's happening is it's pushed up the private market valuation of a lot of private equity. At the same time, the Bitcoin and that other stuff has not done well because it got deleveraged after the Fed started its rate cycle move and it exposed, frankly, a combination of leverage and fraud. It's almost as if John Merriweather from Long-Term Capital Management got married to Bernie Madoff and they delivered a baby called Three Arrows. I mean, you know, this is a combination of leverage and fraud. And, you know, what are you going to do? That's what caused that very steady, very steep price decline in Bitcoin. So. Yeah. And not just 3AC is just one of, of many. I, I recently talked to Arjun Sethi from Tribe 
capital and they're they're big investors in, in the crypto space in, in general. And he was actually saying that the the blow-ups that we see today are actually can be quite good, uh, particularly since they're, since they're happening in a in a transparent way and very quickly. Uh, is that also your thinking? Are you does that make you maybe a little bit more excited for the next projects that are going to come out? Yes, I, I, I definitely think so. Yes, I think that uh, uh, it's been my experience, rightly or wrongly, when we go through trauma like this in the markets, everybody is upset. Oh, my God, what trauma. But it's been my experience. That's typically when I have made my money. And so after 1998, I made a tremendous amount of money, uh, 99 into 2000. Um, that was the long-term capital management crisis. Bernie Madoff, the 2008 global financial crisis. I bought Citibank's business and I scaled it to what it is today, made a ton of money. So um, I'm hoping right at this moment that this is one of those moments where there'll be some opportunity that jumps out at me. Something you have to also look at as an investor is, okay, the market sucks right now. Is there an opportunity? I believe that there is. I was looking at your Twitter feed. Uh, I, I do follow you on Twitter, but I was paying even more attention the last couple of days in preparation. And, and you mainly talk about four things, I believe, and that's family, sports, mostly the Mets, uh, investing, of course, and politics. And, you know, we, we all know uh, the 11-day the stint that you had. And given that we're... Can you imagine? Yeah, I was just going to say, we're a five-year anniversary. Fire from the White House five years ago, July 31st, 2017. Fire from the White House, five years already. But you know what? It feels like it was yesterday. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember it very well. Um, do you think you'll ever jump back into the political sphere? Well, you know, I love my wife. I'm sort of running for re-election in my marriage, Miguel. I'm trying to stay <laughs> married, so... Um, probably not. Having said that, you know, life is long. I think we have an opportunity to potentially do some things that could help people. Would I consider it? Yes, I would. I'm not going to let what happened to me in my first run, not my, you know, I was appointed, but you know, you know what I mean? To, 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 to get in the way. I'm certainly not going to do that. Having said that, I have no plans to do that right now. And the good news is I'm not a politician, so I actually mean what I'm saying. You know, I'm not like one of those politicians who says, oh, I'm not running, and then five minutes later they run, you know. Also, I don't think the country would – let's say I was going to run. I'm not the right person for this era that we're in. We're in this radicalized era, very tribal, very identity-based politics. I would have to see a sea change in the political environment where people are like, hey – uh, the product I want to pick off the political shelf is a moderate who is focused on right or wrong, not necessarily left or right, and wants to figure out a way to how to pull the country together. I mean, the first name of the country is United. I would like to pull the country together. And if so, if, it, if the political winds change where that was acceptable to one of the two parties, um, I would be open to running. You know, and I don't know, would it be for governor or something like that? Maybe. Who the hell knows? I mean, you, know, you never know. I don't want to say no and then end up running. And you're like, oh, God, the guy was on the guy's podcast and I lied <laughs> to the guy. I'm not going to do that. You, you, speaking of bringing people together, mm -hmm. uh, so what, your second company is Salt, right? 
what motivated you to to launch so because it's a it's a media company but you also have this huge conference uh more than one a year in different parts of the world uh it's fantastic right and and i see the appeal i'm also uh in the fund management and media business but uh what what motivated you to to launch this and did you envision it becoming as big as it is today so it's a it's a really good question. I did not envision it. I thought we were going out of business. Okay, so I want to take you back. It was March of 2009. The Dow, I think, went to 6,500. I think the S&P went to 666. And I thought we were going out of business. And so I thought, okay, I could probably be a good third-party marketer for hedge funds. Let me set up a third-party marketing business because Skybridge is going out of business. And so how would I do that? Well, one of the ways to do that is create a conference. And so then what happened was all the conferences that were at the big banks left. So I said, okay, there's this huge vacuum. This is this huge opportunity. Let me go try to create this conference business. And so we created it. It was very small the first year. It was only 300 people. And then I invited President Clinton the second year, and it blew up. And then it became what it is. So people ask me that question, and I say, you know, it wasn't this strategic visionary wisdom that, you know, the light sh shined upon me and then have this wonderful 15-year growing burgeoning conference, global conference business. I didn't, I didn't feel that way at all. You know, this was more of an uh, accidental situation. Make sense? Yeah, you know, it makes sense. Oftentimes was. when you do something that feels right, that goes well, you just do more of it. And and kind of sounds like salt uh, was a product of that. Um, well, before I let you go, Anthony, you so I know you're the grandson of immigrants uh, and, and you're a very proud uh, American. Um, it, it sometimes feel that, feels that you, you have maintain that immigrant mindset you use I, I hear you talk and sometimes you you sound like you were the, the immigrant not your grandparents uh why, why do you think that is which is by the way that's a I, I think that's a great thing i'll take that as a compliment i'll say thank you to that you know i'm from a blue collar family you know so my grandfather on one side was a coal miner my other grandfather was a mason then he became an auto mechanic that actually paid him pretty good money My grandmother was a laundress. My other grandmother was a uh, cook in the school, in the school cafeteria. Um, and so, and my father was a crane operator. So I'm sitting here as a product of those stories. They're all blue collar stories. In my father's case, he was a hourly worker. He was in the union. Um, I got my first job in that union. Frankly, I worked summer as a laborer in that union as I was trying to get through Tufts and Harvard. So I have a connection and I have an appreciation for that part of my life. And um, I'll tell you, I don't know. I mean, I, this is not me dishonoring my dad. I hope it doesn't come across like that because I, I grew up in the middle class. I would never dishonor his, his work ethic by saying otherwise. But I'll tell you something that left a big impression on me. It was March of 1972. I was eight years old and my grandmother and mother were celebrating. Why? Well, a GE washer and dryer were being delivered to our house. And I didn't realize it, but that was a very big deal because my, my mom and my grandmother were carrying the laundry to the laundromat. And they were doing the laundry at the laundromat. 
you know, and, and so now they had saved up enough money. My dad had saved up enough money to get a washer and dryer in the house. And this was a huge deal for me as a kid. So I've gone from that to the level of wealth that I have now. And again, I'm, you know, thank God I made some good money. I'm obviously still very hardworking, still very motivated, but the point being is to go from a family like that to where I am today, I am very blessed. And so I try to look at every day from that position of gratitude. I think people make a very big mistake if they're comparing themselves to other people or they're, you know, I could be having a bad day today, but maybe it'll be a better day tomorrow. Who knows? You can't, can't get yourself so wrapped up and so uptight with all of that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I remember so when that's I, how I try to live and, I think I think my children have benefited from this. I have adult children and some younger children, but my my mom and dad live in the same house I grew up in. I take them back there. My mother, I've renovated parts of the house. My mother won't let me take the 1972 walnut, faux walnut paneling off. And so if anybody's listening to your podcast that grew up like I did, there was faux walnut paneling, you know, and uh, we used to laugh about it. My mother won't let me take it apart, but I think that, helps me stay grounded and connected. Yeah, no, absolutely. I remember when I first arrived here 15 years ago, I couldn't understand why anyone complained, you know, any, anyone with a, with a U.S. passport. <laughs> but uh, no, great. This Anthony. Thanks for stopping by. Uh, as always, pleasure. No, it's chatting. Pleasure to be on with you, Miguel. I, uh, when I saw that I was coming back on, I was delighted at the invitation. Thank you for having me. And the future is so bright, you're going to have to wear shades. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> See you, Anthony. Be well. God bless. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with Anthony Scaramucci, founder of Skybridge. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whenever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.